Well, we're here in Hebrews chapter 11, so we've, uh, we've been 28 weeks. My goodness, that's a long time. I feel like we've been, uh, we've been in Hebrews for, what, eight months, something like that? So we've spent a long time in Hebrews, and uh, the writer of Hebrews has built the case from the very beginning all the way to get us to chapter 11. And so as we get to chapter 11, uh, if you uh, were familiar with anything in, chapter, uh, in Hebrews, rather, Prior to our study, you were familiar, I'm sure, with Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the hall of faith as it's often called. And so tonight we're going to jump into the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 11 and look at what the writer has in store for us. And so tonight I hope that it is as encouraging for you as it has been for me over the last few weeks as I've uh, prepared for tonight. Now as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews uh, 11 comes after a repeated series of warnings to the original audience. And so what the writer of Hebrews has done here, up, into, uh, up until rather chapter 10, is he has given uh, multiple warnings. If you'll remember early on, there was the warning of drifting. And uh, he warned them that it's a, a slow fade, that it's an easy road for you to begin to drift off course. And he's talking to an audience that's primarily uh, Jews. And so, uh, you know, their culture had indoctrinated them uh, to be raised up or to b- be brought up in Judaism. And so as we've gone through uh, all of the cultural things in which Jesus just completely blows out of the water, uh, you know, up to and including Jesus being the new high priest, and that Jesus is infinitely better than that. And so he says, look, don't drift back into your old way of thinking. Uh, that you may, you know, as, as a follower of Jesus, you may think that the cultural uh, idioms, if you will, that you're used to following would bring you to where you ought to be. Well, you're wrong. Jesus is better than that, and that you should be following Jesus. And so if you drift back into that, well, it's a slippery slope. And then as he moved forward through uh, the book of Hebrews, he talked about the danger of doubting and that when you drift, then there's these seeds of doubt that begin to come into your mind. And, you know, if you think about uh, my kids and I were watching a little cartoon last night about uh, the original fall. And, uh, you know, there's every time I read and hear and see that narrative and, and how that goes down, it's just, it just seems like, you know, you, you look at that and you say, how in the world? I mean, she, you know, God said, don't do this. And then Eve said, God said, don't do it. He even said, don't touch it. And then the enemy says, well, did God really say? And so there's, there's all these sly words that are used inside of that. And so what happens when you begin to drift is that doubt begins to creep in. And you begin to doubt things. You begin to doubt the goodness of God. You begin to doubt the plan of God. You, be, you begin to doubt if you can trust God. You, and these are all things that the enemy will plant in your mind and your heart. And so he's warning uh, the recipients of, of uh, Hebrews here and saying, look, if you drift, you will ultimately land in doubting. And then, of course, we get to uh, chapter 6, and of course, 10 is the same thing in uh, verses 26 through 31 and even 32 through 39 where he talks about uh, the danger of despising, that it is possible that you can, uh, if you are not a follower, if you are a, a pretender, if you are associating yourself with the things of God, that you can turn and walk away. That you're the seed that took, uh, that, you know, instead of taking root and growing up, that, you know, you, you had shallow system and you may have sprung up for a time, but then you faded away because the world smothered you. And all the things in which it throws at you. And so he warned them of getting to the point of turning or defecting 
from God. And so there's a multiple warnings here that he's given. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind his congregation not to take the gospel lightly and not to have a superficial understanding of sin. I'm having some trouble with the... Uh, well, he's up there. Uh, let's see here. Bear with me. See if I can get it back. All right, here we go. So the author's been reminding the congregation not to take the gospel lightly and not to have a superficial understanding of sin. That you can't just allow these, um, these old cultural traditions to supplant what your faith is supposed to be. That you have to, when you jump into the gospel, it's all or none. You can't say, well, I'm partially saved or I'm almost saved, right? You know, the analogy has always been with a, a lady that you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no in-between, right? And so it's the same thing with your faith is that you're either under the gospel or you're not. That you can't be almost saved or, you know, I'm getting there. No, you're either saved or you're lost. There's a point. We studied this in Sunday school a few years ago that there's a point in your life to where you go from not being redeemed to, to being redeemed. You know, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's what salvation is, that we come to a point and there's this hinge moment to where we go from being lost and eternally damned to being saved and eternally redeemed. And so he's saying, look, you, you can't take the gospel lightly. It can't be Jesus plus, right? It has to be Jesus. And you can't try to draw in all these old traditions that you want. And, you know, that's one of the things that our church runs into a lot, not our church, but the church, uh, you know, as far as tradition is that we try to drag tradition along and say, well, here's the things that God is leading us to do, but here's what tradition says that we should do. And so he's trying to warn them that, no, you've got to cling tightly to the gospel, that you can't just simply take the gospel lightly. And so ultimately what he's doing is he is imploring them towards perseverance, that you've got to persevere, that you've got to continue in your faith. And as we'll get to in a minute, you know, there's times where you wake up and, you know, you don't feel good. You know, the flu's going around and you, you wake up and you don't feel good. You don't, every day that we wake up is not a day that we wake up and say, I'm ready to charge hell with a water pistol. No, we, there's days where we wake up and we feel defeated. There's days where we wake up that we don't feel adequate. There's days that we wake up that we don't feel like we can uh, move on. And that's where we depend upon the strength of God to do that. And so he is imploring them to continue on. And so now he turns his attention to the topic of faith. Because you see, the only way that you and me and every other person that's breathing oxygen on this planet will actually persevere is if it is through Jesus that allows us to do that. Because it's impossible for you and for me to encounter life and all the things that life may throw at us and yet make it without some external supernatural force that continues to allow us to, to continue. There's no way that you and I could face the things in life were it not for God. And so how then can they, as he's imploring them towards perseverance and essentially, uh, you know, the latter part of chapter 10, how can they do that? Well, you know, beautifully he turns to faith and he says, well, let's look at what faith is. You see, in chapter, one, or chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Now, he's talking to the primarily uh, Jewish audience. And so in Hebrews 11, he starts and he talks about faith, and then he gives a litany of all the people who've lived by faith and what they have accomplished for the gospel by faith. You see, what Hebrews 11 does is it strikes a powerful blow to the attraction of Old Testament Judaism. Because Old Testament Judaism was based on works and that, you know, as we spent quite a bit of time on the Old Covenant and and especially with the old priesthood and how they would have to go and make a sacrifice and there were all these things that they had to do in order for that to, uh, to take place. And so Hebrews 11 comes in and says, no, you know, it's actually not about all of the things that you think that you have accomplished or will accomplish, but it's actually only about Faith, because every single Old Testament hero that we read about in chapter 11 was declared righteous not because, or rather was declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their law-keeping. It wasn't because they were good people or that they had done good things. As a matter of fact, as we journey through chapter 11, you're going to see that these people did some things that uh, are kind of questionable, right? They're not perfect people. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel so scandalous to the world is that how is it possible that God could save and redeem people who which seem unredeemable, who would do things that we would say there's no way anybody could forgive you and yet God forgives. And so as you know this morning as you uh, we listened through the story of Esther uh, in our morning message and then you had an opportunity to discuss that in small group and uh, one of the questions what was you know is it is anybody too far from God? Right? And so, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, well, righteousness is declared not because you're good at doing something or that you've earned it, but it's because by faith you've been declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. What he's essentially trying to get them to understand is, is how could law-keeping under the old covenant be superior to faith? Because, again, they kept trying to revert back to their old ways. And so the question is, how could the old covenant be superior to faith in Christ through the new covenant If, how's that possible if it's better, if no Old Testament saint was ever declared righteous because they were able to keep the Old Covenant? God didn't look at the Old Covenant and say, well, all right, Noah, because you did, or Moses or whoever, because you did so well at keeping this, you are now declared righteous. No, righteousness is declared because of faith. And so as we start for clarity, we want to answer a couple of questions. So tonight, the first question we want to answer is, what is faith? Now, if I were to ask the room, you know, we were to poll the room tonight and say, hey, what is faith? We would have some similar answers. I I would assume they would probably all be very close, Uh, but some would be different, right? There would be a couple thoughts. Maybe you'd have some nuances, some experiential thoughts that you may toss in there about what is faith. And so I want you to think about that in terms of someone who is not a believer, so if someone off the street who was, uh, you know, faith was a foreign concept to them, and they said, well, you say, well, I have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that because of what he accomplished on the cross that I'll spend eternity with him. And they say, faith, wait a minute, time out. What, what is faith? How would you answer that? What would you, what would you say? What is faith? Well, tonight I'm going to give you just a couple of things that I think Mike could help you with that. Uh, number one, what is faith? Well, faith is what saves us. You're, you are saved by faith. I'm saved by faith. Anyone who is a believer is saved by faith. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work. So it's not the old covenant, so that no one may boast. So no one one is redeemed because of anything that they did. Nobody earned salvation ever, you know, past, present, or future. Nobody's going to achieve uh, salvation because of something that they did. According to Ephesians 2, Paul says that uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So that's how you came to believe in Jesus, that there was a moment in your life Whenever that was, and for me, tomorrow will be 21 years, February the 4th, uh, there was a moment in your life that you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that at a point in your life, whatever, whenever that was, that you came to trust, that you put your trust in the facts of who Jesus is. Right, And so you said, ever how it became known to you, whether it was through preaching, whether you know, someone shared the gospel with you, uh, whatever happened, there was a moment in your life to where you were exposed to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And that you heard about a man that lived 2,000 years ago, that was born of a virgin, that he didn't have a biological father uh, on earth, but yet uh, God uh, bore him through uh, Mary, and that he lived for 33 years, his Historically, you can study and find that to be factually true, and that you, you heard that Jesus, this same Jesus, who lived for 33 years, was crucified on a cross. Now, you heard that Jesus lived a perfect life, and you heard that Jesus was factually crucified on the cross, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, here's all the reasons that I believe the resurrection and crucifixion of Jesus to be true, and here's all the people that can attest to that. And so you heard those facts, and you said, I believe that. I trust the source of which I gain that information. Now, again, it could be the Word of God. It could have been a neighbor or a pastor. Someone, some way, in some shape, form, or fashion, you were exposed to the reality of who Jesus is. And by faith or in trust, you said, yes, I believe that. And then you heard that Jesus not only died on the cross but that he rose three days later and that they can't find his body. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there's factual evidence that Jesus, in fact, rose from the grave. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about that. There's over 500 people that saw him. He made multiple appearances, right? And so there's much evidence for the proof of the resurrection. I sat for 40 hours one week and studied nothing but the resurrection of Jesus. And so I've got a lot of information about the resurrection of Jesus, one of the most fascinating weeks of my life. And so all of the evidence that proves that Jesus is, in fact, alive, well, you know, what is the evidence that Jesus is alive? Well, you read or heard or someone told you that there were 11 guys that followed Jesus when he was alive, and they believed everything that he said and did, and that he commissioned them to go and tell the world all that he said and did. And by faith or in trust, you said, I believe that. And all of these 11 guys In so much believing that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead and appear to them, they said, I'm giving my life for that. And so they spent the rest of their life declaring the reality that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. And they were, in fact, martyred for that. So they gave their life not for a lie, because people don't die for a lie, right? But they gave their life based on facts of personal experience and evidence, okay? Uh, How about the fact that Mary lived right outside the city after Jesus was crucified? And uh, if Jesus, in fact, didn't raise from the dead, you think that a mom would allow people to go around and propagate the lie that their son, in fact, was now alive, but yet she knew the reality that he was dead? No, she would say, that's not true. Although I want it to be true, he is not 
alive. But she allowed that to continue to be promoted. Why is that? Because it was true. So from a mother's perspective, she wanted that very thing to be true, and in fact, it did happen. And so there's multiple evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but at some point, you heard all that. And at that moment, maybe the first time or the fifth time, you said, I believe that. And then you heard the fact that without the shedding of blood or without uh, blood uh, sacrifice, there was no forgiveness of sin. And then you realize, you know what? I can't do that for myself. And so there has to be a substitute. Someone has to be perfect in order for me to be saved. And I'm pretty sure I'm not perfect. And so how can I get saved? Well, there has to be a perfect sacrifice. So then you say, well, who was perfect? Well, Jesus was. So again, I'm giving you the foundational aspects of what you came to believe by faith or by trust that was true about Jesus. And then you staked your life on it, right? You said, I'm going to live the rest of my life based on the reality of what I now believe who Jesus is. And so by faith or in trust, we believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did, and that he will do what he says he will do. Right? Amen? Yep. So that's why you're here, is because by faith, you believe those things. So that is what faith is. What is faith? Well, faith is what saves us. It is that we place our trust in something that we believe to be true. So faith is, again, uh, what saves us. So faith is, now for clarity, it is the means, it is not the source of justification, which, you know, you being justified righteous before God. Faith is not the source. Grace is the source of justification. You are saved. I am saved by grace, and that is accomplished through faith. And so you're justified through faith, not because of faith. So that ought to blow the water out of all of the prosperity gospel, which says, well, you're sick because you don't have enough faith. Well, you're poor because you don't have enough faith. Well, this is not happening in your life because you don't have enough faith. Because why is that? Well, then that turns back around to you. And then it becomes contingent upon you having to have enough faith. So you've got to conjure up enough faith in your life in order to receive all the blessings, air quotes, that uh, you would have received had you had enough faith. And so that alone blows prosperity gospel right out of the water. Because you're, you're saved through faith, not by faith. And so salvation comes through faith. And so uh, for us, what is faith? Well, it is, number one, what saves us. So you get saved. If that was the only thing that faith did, well, then guess what would happen? None of us would be here. Because if, if faith was simply to save us, then when we got saved, we're gone, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? I really wish that were true. That we got saved and then, boom, we're in heaven. That'd be amazing. But that's not the reality of it. As a matter of fact, we're saved through faith. And then what happens in our life? Well, number two, it is what sustains us. Because here's the deal. I want you to think about this. When you have something difficult happen in your life, for instance, uh, you know, so somebody passes away. Uh, we've, we've all experienced, uh, you know, difficulties in life. And so the last difficulty that you went through or a difficulty, think about whatever that may be, that you've gone through. How did you make it through that? Did you, you know, I had, I've had family members pass away in car accidents. So when that happened, I looked at that situation, and as traumatic as it was and as, you know, grief-stricken as I was, 
what sustained me through that? Was it faith? How do you make it through difficult situations? Everybody in this room, if we were to, you know, have open mic and you were to talk about all the things that you've encountered in life, there's some difficult things that people go through. I mean, hard things. And what is it that keeps us moving forward? Well, it's faith. And here's why, here's the proof of that. Because, for instance, a loved one passes away. Well, by faith, what do we believe? Well, the Bible teaches us that, that in heaven that we will be reunited with those people, right? And so I believe that those people that passed away in my family, that there will be a day that I'll be reunited with those people in heaven. I'll see them in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? And so by faith, I'm able to make it through that. Or let's say that it's not uh, as traumatic as losing a loved one, but let's just say it's an, a difficult situation. You lose a job or, um, you know, something doesn't go your way. Well, how do you make it through that? How do you make it through things that you don't understand? How do you make it through situations that don't make any sense? You know, like God told Moses, hey, go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him that we're going to take the Israelites and we're leaving. And he says, now, he's going to say no, but I want you to do it anyway. And so Moses goes, and of course, you know, uh, Pharaoh says, all right, well, we're not even going to give you the straw for the bricks now. You've got to find out yourself, but you've still got the same quota. And Moses, at the end of chapter 5, says, God, why did you tell me to do that? It doesn't make any sense. How did Moses make it through that situation? It was by faith. Because he believed, ultimately, that God's plans were bigger than what he could see, which we'll get to in a minute. And that's how you make it through everything that happens in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, is that you believe, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And so that is what sustains you. That's how you can face tomorrow, is because you believe that God is in absolute and total control, and that no matter what happens tomorrow, that God is still sovereign. And so if it's good, God is sovereign. If it's bad, God is sovereign. And if nothing happens tomorrow, God is still sovereign. And so by faith, it is what sustains you. It is what allows you to continue on in your life because we'll get to it in a second. He uses the word hope. And that's what pushes you forward. And that's what pushes me forward is the fact that we believe through faith that God will accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. And so uh, in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. And that is exactly, if you're a believer here tonight, that's what you live by is faith. It is what sustains you in your walk and in my walk. Uh, you know, essentially what Habakkuk 2.4 says is the righteous will live by the faithfulness of God. That faith is trust in the faithfulness of who God is. Three times we see this quoted in the New Testament, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And so you and I live by faith. That's what a believer does. You see, that's what makes you different than an unbeliever. You see, in your life, if you say, oh, I have faith, well, James says, well, show me your faith by your works, right? That you're going to live out what you say you believe. That if you say you have faith in Jesus and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6, or Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. If you believe those things, then guess what? You will live differently than the world. And so your life will be different than a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or whoever it may be. And so faith is what differentiates us. Faith in God differentiates us from the unbelieving world. And so then what is faith? Well, it saves you and sustains you. Well, then how do you get it? Well, that's a good question. So if someone asks you off the street, what is faith? And you gave them the answer. And they say, okay, that sounds good. I want some of that. How do I get faith? Well, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, 
that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so as he starts here in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says that this faith of, of how we receive it through the hearing of the Word of Christ, as we talked about earlier, that's how we all received faith. It is the assurance of things that are hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And so what happens in our life is that faith produces hope, and that hope produces perseverance. Remember, he's trying to implore them towards perseverance. And so in your life and in my life, faith produces hope, that we, through trusting God, then now have hope that those things will, in fact, come to be true. And so as we, we'll get into hope, hope is not saying, you know, I hope that the Patriots lose the Super Bowl. That's not real hope, although I do hope the Rams win. I just am tired of the Patriots winning. That's just, just too much. Uh, but it's different than just simple hope, right? And so we see here that he's, you know, this faith that he's talking about, it produces hope, and hope produces perseverance. And so what does that look like in our own life? Well, this perseverance, it is the demonstration of faith. You say, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that I have to place my faith in Him. I have to follow Him in order to be saved. Well, guess what? Then I'm going to have to demonstrate that faith by actually doing something. I can't say, that's what James says, you can't say that you have faith and not do anything. That's not real faith. I mean, that, James was the half-brother of Jesus. He ought to know. It took the resurrection of Jesus for James to become a believer. And so James spent his whole life not believing that Jesus was really the Son of God. And then through the works of what God did, James says, okay, all right, I got you now. My bad on that one. I was totally wrong. And so James says, look, if you say you want to follow Jesus, then put the rubber to the road. If you say you have faith, then prove it. There should be a demonstration of your faith. And so as we talk about this faith, I know it's you know, in some circles has been misconstrued, maybe even in your own past, you've run across a couple of these examples. And so I want to give you for clarity tonight what faith is not. So there's a few things that faith is not. Number one, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. Have you ever woke up in the morning and said, man, I feel faithful today? No, of course not, right? It's not a feeling. I know, you know, Growing up and, uh, you know, in legalism and, uh, you know, just there was a, a certain way that those type of churches believe that you have to be saved. you got to do a certain thing. And uh, part of it was emotional. At least that's what they thought. And so, uh, you know, that's not true, though. I mean, think about your own, you know, experience of coming to faith in Jesus. Some people were emotional. Some people aren't. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not a feeling. There's not... That's not how that works. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is also not an emotion. It's not something that you, you know, you say, oh, well, I'm feeling faithful and so I'm going to do this. Nobody says that because that's not reality. That's not what happens. That is not what faith is. Now, we're saved by grace through faith, but it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Here's something that the world really says faith is, is that it's blind optimism. Oh, well, you're simple-minded people believing in Jesus. You have no proof of that. That's just blind optimism. That's not what faith is. Faith is not believing without substance. 
You know, what, what the world says faith is, is um, going to buy something that you don't have the money for and writing a check even though you know there's no money in the bank. You know, oh, well, God will cover this one. And, you know, just writing, that's blind optimism. That's what that is. That's not faith. That's not how God operates. And, but the world says that. The world says, oh, well, you're just believing, uh, you know, especially in today's culture, you know, you're just believing some, some fallacy about history when, in fact, that's just, you're believing something that you can't see. Well, you're right, I am, and we'll get to that in a minute because that's what faith is. And so it's not blind optimism, just randomly believing something, although you have no proof of that, and it's certainly not a hunch. Well, I feel really good about this one, so we're going to go on that. Faith is not a hunch. There is validity. There is substance. There is objectivity to what faith is. And so as we talk about that and we dig in tonight, it is, when, when you say you have faith, it, it is a demonstration that you are saying, I believe it, and here's the proof of that. Because James chapter 2, verse 19 says the demons in hell believe in Jesus and yet tremble. So it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not blind optimism, and it's definitely not a hunch. What is faith then? Well, faith is a solid conviction that is based upon God's Word. You're convicted or you're convinced of the fact that the Word of God really is infallible, that it's perfect, that it's inerrant. And we can give you reasons for that. There's over 6,000 manuscripts that have been found to prove the validity of Scripture. The second closest is less than 600 manuscripts, which is the writings of Homer. So there's over 10 times more proof for the, uh, the proof of the Scripture or the, you know, being verified of Scripture than there is for any other writing that's ever existed. And there's many other reasons that I could give you for that. But faith is simply believing that the Word of God is, in fact, what it says is true. I mean, you look at Daniel, written uh, in 600 B.C., uh, and, and you see all of the prophecies that took place and some of those prophecies, every single thing that God promised in Scripture that would come true did come true. I mean, again, just using Dan Daniel as an example and you study the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel and you look at uh, the prophecy of, of all these things that will come to pass that again were, you know, five 600 B.C. And yet in, in the part of that prophecy was that Israel would become the nation that it is, that it became in 1948. How would someone know that? I mean, can you predict something that's going to happen 2,500 years in the future? I can't. But because of the proof of who God is, that God can do that, because he supernaturally infused the knowledge or the prophecy of what would take place. And so it is a conviction that God's word is, in fact, true and what he says that it will be, right? That's what faith is. And so he says that faith is this resolute confidence. And so what faith's character then is certitude, that it is, it is certain that it is, in fact, true. So, you know, if you say that you have faith, you believe that the Word of God is true, how far are you willing to go to prove that? I mean, there's been people in history, many, who've given their life based on the proof that the gospel was, in fact, true. I mean, right, you've, I mean, we've all read and heard stories where if you renounce your faith, well, then you can live. If you don't, then you die. And they say, well... I believe, right? That's what faith is. It's certain certainty. It's certitude of knowing that it is, in fact, true. It is the assurance. It is the certainty of God doing what he promised he would do. 
I mean, you, you can think, as I'm thinking through this, there, I mean, there's so many other, there's, there's many other belief systems, right? I mean, you know, there's other religions. They have, they have writings, things that they believe to be true, but they're full of errors. If you've ever read any other belief systems literature and, and they're, they're what they believe to be true, it's not. I mean, there's so many things that have been proven to be inaccurate or to be untrue, and yet God welcomes those questions. I was talking to Pastor Rod earlier before church tonight. We were talking about, you know, the fact that God says, hey, you got a question, ask me. You have doubts, well, ask me. God's not hiding anything, and history can verify that. I mean, if you've learned anything so far in the study of Esther, is that uh, Tony, Pastor Tony has referenced many of the writings of who? Of Josephus, who was an extra-biblical writer who verified the historical accounts of what Esther was saying happened during that time period. So, so we have all of these other proofs of, hey, not only does the Word of God say it's true, but look at the evidence, the overwhelming evidence that in fact proves that it is true. It is the assurance. It's the certainty. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater uh, by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And so the certainty of our faith is that God would do what he promised to do. Well, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, which we've already talked about, God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And so since there was no one greater to swear by, he said, I'm the top of the line. I am the creator, Yahweh God. I am Jehovah God. And so there is no one that I can say, look, I promise that I'll do it. You can ask my friend or you can ask my pastor or you can ask, you know, whoever. No, God said, look, there's no one that's higher than me. And so I'm going to swear by myself that it will be true because he is the top of the line. You see, God was the witness to his own covenant. He told Abraham, look, you know, all those stars that you're gazing into, I created those. And I'm making a promise to you, Abraham, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And to prove that covenant, I'm going to, as there has to be two or three witnesses to solidify it, to be the witness, I'm going to witness to myself because there's no one greater than me. And so our assurance of the certainty that God will do what he said he'll do is based on the fact that God is the top of the line, that there is no one higher than him. And so he was the witness to his own covenant. We also see in Exodus chapter 3, in verses 13 and 14, uh, we see that uh, when Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say? And so Moses says, okay, you want me to go to Pharaoh, and you want me to ask for the million Israelites to leave, okay? What if they ask me who told me this? And God says, well, you know, he, and Moses says, if they ask for a name, I need a name. You know, it's name dropping. This is the original name dropping. And so he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Because Moses is like, look, okay, Pharaoh, he's basically in charge of everything that breathes. And so if, uh, if he asked me who told me to tell him that, what should I say? You know, he's trying to think ahead here. Good for Moses, right? And, and God says, well, there's no one greater than me, and I'm greater than Pharaoh, so tell him that I am has sent you. 
That's hilarious. You see, in order to guarantee the outcome, what did God do? Well, God was the originator. God said, okay, I'm going to get the Israelites out, and here's how I'm going to do it. And so he, he originated this plan. And then he says, okay, I want them to come out of captivity, and the Egyptians are going to chase them. I'm going to part the Red Sea. I'm going to drown the, the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and the uh, Israelites are going to be free and clear on the other side. So he originated the plan, and then he executed the plan. The Israelites didn't part the Red Sea. God did. So he executed the plan, and then guess what happened? Did they ever get to the promised land? Well, of course they did. How did that happen? Well, it was because of the conquest of God. How did they defeat Jericho? Was it because of their great military might? Or was it because they hilariously marched around the city and the walls fell? God did it, right? He was the closer of the deal. And so God says, you know, our faith is based on the, uh, the certainty of who God is. Well, look at all historically God has done to do what? God did it to prove himself faithful. It would have been very easy. You know, one of the questions came up in D group this week is, why didn't God just zap the Israelites right out of Egypt? Well, he could have. But if you, if you know anything about God, you know that God's, God's objective is not completion right? God's not interested in just the results. God's interested in the interim, in the growth, in the sanctification, in the leaning in towards Him. And so if God would have done that, well, then, you know, He could have easily said, all right, well, we're going to take them out, and then there's going to be no plagues, and they're in their sleep, you're going to disappear. Well, I mean, how would we learn anything about the character of God if that would have happened? How would have they learned to trust God had that not happened, right? And so we learn all these things because God is the one who is the originator. He, he's the one who's been faithful all throughout history. So he has proven himself to be trustworthy, to which you should say amen. So what happens is God does these things and he makes promises based on the surety of who he is, not based on the ability of the person. Because again, as I said, when we get into chapter 11, uh, subsequent verses, we're going to see that some of these guys, they weren't always, they didn't always do the right thing. And you have faith and God didn't base your faith contingent upon your ability to complete it, did he? Of course not. Because guess what? If he did, you would fail because you already have failed. Ever since you've been saved, you've still sinned. You've still fallen. You've still failed. And that is not based on your faithfulness. So when you stand before God, he's not going to say, great job. You've been very faithful. No, it's based upon the faithfulness of who Jesus is that he imputes to us through the Holy Spirit. And so for you and for me, our salvation is based on the faithfulness of God, not on your ability or my ability, which is a very, very good thing, by the way. And so faith is not contingent on the situation or on the outcome. Do you believe only if it happens the way you think it should happen? That's not faith. That's negotiation. So it's not contingent on the situation, and it's not contingent on the outcome. Why is that? Why is faith not contingent on the outcome? Why is it not contingent on the situation? Well, here's why. Because faith is, it, faith is not contingent upon that because God already knows the outcome. So faith, which is trust in God and the faithfulness of God, if God already knows the outcome, well, He already knows what His faithfulness will accomplish and so he's already said it beforehand. That's the sovereignty of God. 
And so if God has already preordained things to take place, and he already knows the outcome of those, then that means that the situations or the outcome of those situations is not contingent upon my faith because God already knows what's going to happen. He already knows how it's going to end. He already knew that he would part the Red Sea. He already knew what he would do with the Israelites. And he already knows what he's going to do in your life and in my life, which is why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28. You see, this is where uh, your faith, when you're certain in your faith, this is where activation takes place. You say, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe everything that you've told me or that I've read about Jesus to be true. So based upon the fact that I believe that to be true, I will now act in faith. Or in other words, I will activate my faith that I'm going to now walk in light of that information. That if Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that He is, well then I'm going to base my life on that fact. And so I'm going to act in a way in which I believe that or, or I you know, I activate that. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. Because you can say that you have faith, James says, but not act on it. Well, then you don't really have faith. So let me give you an example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they're standing in front of the furnace because they didn't do what they, were, what they were told to do. They said, we'd rather obey God than man. And so they're standing in front of this furnace, and, they, and the king says, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm about to toss you in. And they said, okay. How could they do that? How could they believe that God would rescue them? This is what they said. If this be so, read all the words slowly. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But if not, verse 18, be it, be, uh, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Jesus was not on the side over there saying, hey, guys, listen, go in there. It's going to be fun. No. There was not an angel in the back of the flames, you know, standing up and down, jumping, saying, come on in, you're going to be safe in here. No, that is not what happened. They were standing in front of this fiery pit. The Bible says it was so hot, some of the guards died, right? And so they're standing in front of this fiery pit, and they said, by faith, we believe in Yahweh God. And he says, he says whom we serve, he is able to deliver. He didn't say he will deliver us. He said he is able to deliver us. And they believed in God so much so to the fact that they said he's able to do it. Whether or not he does it doesn't matter. The outcome, the situation of how it will end is irrelevant. It will not change my faith in who God is. This is a perfect example. And so they said, toss me in the fire. It doesn't change God. And so in our life and in all the situations that we encounter, good, bad, or indifferent, they don't change God. Who cares what CNN says? You can't change God. Pass the law. I don't care because it doesn't change right or wrong. I mean, right has always been right, and it never depended upon whose definition it was. It's always been what God said, and it will always be that way. And so we see here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, toss me in, man, I don't care. God, the God that I serve, he is able to deliver me, but in case he doesn't, 
I want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, that God's deliverance of me out of this fire doesn't change who he is. That's what faith is. That's the faith that we ought to be living through, that, that the faith that we ought to be living in, that ought to be activated in our life, that we say that we believe these things about the Word of God, that we spend time reading the 66 books that God has so given us to teach us about Himself, and we say, I believe, then you ought to live that way. That's what faith is. It's not talking. It's not empty words. It's not vain repetition. We've already studied that. It's activation of actually living out what you say you believe. That's what faith is. It's not showing up and sitting on a padded pew in a protected Western culture from persecution. That is not what faith is. You you don't get credit for coming here. This is not some attendance record that God is keeping. Faith is living in a way which reflects who God really is. That's what faith is. The, the, the culture, uh, specifically the religious culture, has, has lulled the church to sleep in believing that faith is simply showing up and attending. That is not faith. You can spend the night here and it's not going to make you saved. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that their faith was activated, that they said God is able, that he will do what he said he will do. They had no visible evidence that they would be delivered. They didn't say, I believe God if he rescues me from this fire. That's not what they said. Nope, they said, our God is able. That's the God that they served in their heart. You see, by faith, they simply took God at his word and they lived it as truth. How would the world be different if people did that? Just God said it, I believe it, I'm going to do it. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't have 66 books of the Bible. At best, they had the Pentateuch, right, the first five books of the Bible. And they said, well, here's what God said, we're going to do it. I'm in, let's do it. They just took God at his word. God said it, they believed it, and their, their life was an a, a reality of their faith. And so here's the principle for us. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. True obedience, true faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faith was obedient confidently to what God had revealed to them in spite of what might happen to them, which we know the story, they were rescued from the fire. But it didn't, the, the end didn't change their faith. If they had not been rescued, they still had faith. You see, it is our total response to what God has revealed in his word. We say, I believe that God's word is true. That's why you know, it, it, I mean, we, we have D group, and, and you should be, if you're not in a D group, you should be in a D group. It gives you accountability in reading God's word, which is baffling to me that if we say we believe in the God of the Bible and we don't read the Bible, I mean, how's that possible? So if you're not in a D group, you should be in a D group because it, it is the avenue by which you have accountability in reading God's word. 
your word I have hidden in my heart, Psalms 119.11, that I might not sin against you, right? That's what the word of God is for. How would you know what God's promises are if you didn't read God's word? And so it's our response to what God has revealed in his word. Faith is what allows us to see the invisible things around us. How do you see the activity of God? Henry Blackaby says, find out where God's working and go join him. Well, you have to see the activity of God and you have to join him. That's how I ended up at Michael Memorial Baptist Church. It's, I came, if you've never heard the story, and I sat on the back row and uh, God was working at Michael Memorial and people were getting saved and baptized. And so I recognized the activity of God. And so I told my wife, Melanie, we should join this church. God is working here and we should join God's work. That's what faith is, is joining, finding where God's working and joining him. And so faith, is, it allows us to see these invisible things. All right, isn't that what Ephesians 6 says, that we don't fight against principalities and power? Uh, we don't fight against the things that we see, but we fight against the things that we don't see, the principalities and the powers of principalities, the spirit world around us. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Paul wrote that. He says, look, what you see is not what you're fighting. The, the, the battle is in the spirit of, of good versus evil. It's the invisible things. I mean, you know the story with Elijah, with the servant, and, and they're surrounded. And, and Elijah says, God, you know, the servant's flipping out. Hey, man, we're about to die. Look at all these guys around us. And Elijah said, God, let him see your army. Let him see your warriors. And, and uh, the servant of Elijah was able to see all of the warriors for God. And he said, oh, 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 okay. I mean, what if you focused on that? What if you saw that, in fact, that God is on your side and that by faith, through faith, that God has activated in your life, that you have at the, at the beck and call the entire host of heaven on your side? That when you kneel before the throne and you pray for God to do things on behalf of someone else or on your behalf, that you have the ear of heaven listening to you. That the creator of the universe is listening to your request. And that he is able, according to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, he's able to do anything. And if you believe that, you would pray audacious things. That you would ask God to do things that could never be accomplished by simply man doing it, but it would have to be an act of God. You get to see invisible things when you have faith. It's not just what you see. See, most people operate in what they see. And when you operate in what you see, you only get what you see. But if you operate in the invisible, if you operate in the things that are unseen, which is faith, well, then guess what happens? Then you get to see what others can't see. You get to see what other people can't see. How did Elijah's servant see that? It wasn't because Elijah was great, although he was pretty awesome. It was because God enabled him to see that because of faith, that he believed that God was, in fact, the supreme ruler of the universe, that he was able to deliver them from the enemy. You see, the God, I mean, this has been said here many times before, but the God that you serve in your heart and mind is the God that you believe in your heart and mind. If God is not able to accomplish things in your life, well, then you're serving the wrong God, that you have the wrong view of God in your life, that ever how big God is in your life is how much you will, by faith, believe that he will accomplish things in your life. And if he's small in your life, then he's going, in your mind, he'll only accomplish small things. So by faith, that's what lets you see things. You see, as a result of faith, well, guess what happens? Well, you get to do what other people can't do. 
man, I just wish God would work in my life. I wish God would do those things in my life. Well, what's your faith like? Is your faith activated? Are you living in faith? Are you walking and, and believing that God is, in fact, who he said that he is? I, I mean, you know, this is just an example, but uh, if, if, you, if you're involved in foster care, so I can't, if I had a nickel for every time I heard this, I could retire tomorrow. They say, oh, you know, oh, man, I can't believe, you know, we have a little five-month-old baby now. Oh, I can't, man, that's just terrible. You know, these are people outside of our circle here, you know, so that's just, that's just unbelievable. I just, I just don't see how you do it. I could never do that. I, I could never let them go back home. I, I, I just, there's no way I could deal with that. If, you, if, you've, if you're involved in foster care, you've heard the same thing. Over and over and over, people say that all the time. I've been told a thousand times, I could never do that. Well, you're right, you can't. And neither can I. I mean, it's impossible. How do you take care of a human that is not your biological child? How do you care for someone? How do you do that? How do you wake up in the middle of the night with a baby that's not yours, that you never met till a couple months ago? How do you do that? How do you let two boys stay in your house for seven months that you never met till seven months ago and, and they spend Christmas? How do you do those things? It's not in me. It's not because I'm a good person or, man, you're awesome. That's great. No, I'm not. Neither are you. It, it, you can't. The only way it's possible is because it's through faith that God, he enables those things to be done. And so we're able to accomplish things that can never be accomplished on our own. I mean, think about it. It's the same thing with mission work. Man, I can never go to Brazil. I can never go to the jungle. I can never tell somebody about Jesus. I can never travel that far. I can never take that much off work. I can never, I can never, I can never. You hear that? All, I mean, all the time. You, you're going to, man, that's just, that's amazing. I can never do that. Oh, you're right. You can't. Neither can I. I mean, what enables me to go 5,000 miles across the globe to people I've never met, to a place I've never been, to share the gospel to people who've never heard. Faith. That's what, that's an activation of faith. And so the things in your life that you accomplish through faith are things that you would never be able to accomplish apart from faith. Uh, Dr. J. Oswald Sanders, this is not uh, on the screen, it says, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present. So to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. So we're able to look forward and see the future as present, and the invisible as seen. Here's the premise of this. By faith, you and I believe, according to what the Word of God says, that there will come a day when all the lights will be turned out and we'll, we'll step into eternity. Either we're going to pass away or God's going to rapture us. We go to eternity. And what do we believe about that? We believe that in eternity, that those who trust Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in relationship with God. So we'll be in the presence of God forever. And those that do not accept Jesus Christ will spend an eternity separated from God in eternity, right? Forever. You're gonna, by faith, we believe that. And so what we believe is that I can make it through today. This is the sustaining part, that I can make it through today and tomorrow and the next X number of years that God allows me to live because at the end of my life, that when I step into eternity, that I will spend the rest of eternity with God. That is the future that I'm living today. I'm living my faith of the future right now. And so I follow God today because I know that his promises tell me that tomorrow this is what will happen, right? That's what faith is. And so I'm able to make the future today, the future is present, and the invisible as seen. 
that the reality of who God is and the proof of who God is is based upon what God said that he is. And so because of that, that is a reality. It is seen for me that you can see the things in which God does. So faith is the substance or it is the evidence, the assurance of things hoped for. So you say, oh, well, hope. Yeah, you know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, hope, and love uh, abide, and the greatest of these is love. So faith, then, is the substance by which hope is founded. Faith is the substance by which hope is founded. You see, when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not referring to a desire for a future outcome that is uncertain. God didn't say, believe me, trust me, and hope that everything works out okay. That's not what the Bible says. But it is a desire for a future outcome that is absolutely sure. It's done, accomplished. That is what faith, when the Bible speaks of hope, we say we have hope in eternity. We have hope in knowing that it will absolutely happen. That is absolutely sure. And so based on our trust and the promises of God, we can be fully confident about the outcome. Based on our trust and the promises of God. Well, how do we know that that's going to happen? Well, let's look back and let's look at the track record of God and all of the things that God has said he would do. And then, in fact, God did. So based on what God has done, his track record, we can trust his promises and be confident about the outcome. And so what hope is, is simply faith that is looking forward. Hope is simply faith that looks forward. So we look forward to the accomplishment of what God will uh, do. And we say, well, we have hope. We, p- we place our hope in that. So it's the faith of looking forward. Because when faith is linked to hope, it is put in the time frame of the future. So when we link, and the author of Hebrews here links faith to hope, we're looking towards the future. And the one thing that we cannot see is tomorrow. I have no idea what will happen tomorrow. I hope it's an awesome day for every one of us. But I don't know. Okay, and so by faith we look forward to tomorrow. And based on the promises of God, we trust that tomorrow is going to be okay. You see, some realities for you and for me are unseen. Because they belong, as Paul mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, in the spiritual realm. So we don't see those things. We know they exist because the Bible says that they do, but we don't, we're not privy to those sometimes. But there are some things that are, are unseen because they lie in the future, that we just don't see them because they haven't happened yet. Remember, God is not confined by time and space. And so when we look at hours and months and years and we plan all these things, God's not confined by that. You know, the Bible says to God, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And so based on that, Jesus has been gone for two days. Not a long time, right? And so God is not confined by that, but we are. And so we look to the future, and there's things that haven't happened yet that we, by faith, believe that. So we believe in the promises of God, and we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God does. And so we base our faith not on what tomorrow brings, but on the bringer of tomorrow, right? And so it is God who we're placing our faith in, not what will happen Tomorrow, And so this is what faith is. It is not believing in God. It is believing God. That it's not, God, because you said so-and-so will happen tomorrow, 
or next week or whatever, then I believe in that. No, it's simply believing God, that God is who He says He is and that He'll do what He says He'll do. And regardless of what happens tomorrow, either I make it or I don't, but God is still God. That doesn't change God, right? We've already talked about that. And so God in His providence, then He gives us evidence that He says, believe me. So as he talks about this evidence, he said, uh, for it, the people of old received their commendation, the, the conviction of things that weren't seen. And the word he uses here, evidence, it means conviction. It's the inward conviction from God that what he has promised, he will perform. And so the presence of God-given faith in one's heart is conviction enough that he will keep his word. So the presence of God-given faith is the conviction that God will keep His Word, that He'll do what He said He will do. And so in verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, For uh, for by it the people of old received their commendation. It was how they were approved. And so faith is how the believer receives their approval. Faith is how the believer receives their approval. Remember, by faith, uh, by grace, through faith, we are saved. And so through that faith, for you and for me, we receive our commendation or our approval. And so when we stand before God, we will receive one of two options. There's either going to be commendation or approval, right? God's going to say, okay, by grace, through faith, you are saved. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. Or it will be condemnation, which is Matthew 7, 21 through 25, where he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Right? So it would be condemned in hell or approved in heaven. And so on Judgment Day, we'll either stand before God as approved because of Christ or condemned without Him. So there's the two choices. He says, so by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So, well, what does that mean? How are Old Testament people, so as we talk about faith... Well, how, how is David saved if Jesus didn't come till several hundred years later? Well, the redeemed from Israel before Christ, they, they were saved because they trusted God to be faithful to His promises. Well, what did God promise? He promised a Messiah, right? And so because of that faith in the promises of God, they were able to be saved or they were able to trust God because of His Word. So just like them in in looking forward, so for us, by faith, we look back, right? Raise your hand this afternoon if you were there when Jesus was crucified, right? Nobody nobody can raise. You don't know anybody who was there when Jesus was crucified. Your grandparents, grandparents, grandparents don't know anybody who was there when Jesus was crucified, right? Nobody was there. None, None of us living were there. There were people there, but none of us were there. So why, why do we believe that? How do we believe that? How do we believe that Jesus was crucified? How do we believe that? By faith, right? We look back to the cross and we say, well, because of that and the resurrection, we receive salvation in faith that it happened. I wasn't there. I wasn't privy to that. God, God didn't, uh, I wasn't allowed to live in that time frame. But there were people who were there right? John was at the foot of the cross. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 again, Jesus appeared to over 500 people and, and, you know, there was all these proofs of Jesus doing that. And so because of their word and because of the promises of God, we look back and then we say, I believe that by faith. It's the same thing for the Old Testament saints. They look forward and say, well, I'm not going to get to see it, 
but I believe it'll happen by faith. And so he goes to verse 3, says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So as we wrap up tonight, just a couple of other things here. You see, the, the only thing that no human was present for is the creation. Nobody was there. Not a single human. And yet we believe that it took place. Right? I mean, we all believe that. By faith, we, you know, we believe that God told Moses, okay, here's, here's how I did it, and I want you to write it down. And so we have the account in Genesis. And on, this, on the first day, God did this. On the second day, God did And so we believe that. And, he, and God writes uh, through Moses, here's what happened. Here's how everything came to be. Here's how man was created. Here's how woman was created. Here's why I created woman. Here's all the things that happened in creation. By faith, we believe that. No human was present for that. We, we believe that ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created, no, he took nothing and said, okay, I'm going to create something, and he created the earth. We believe that. By faith, we believe that. There was no human that was present for creation, but yet we believe it. You see, faith is confident that the creation that we see is really the product of what we don't see. That's how we believe that. We didn't see it, but we believe it. Remember, faith allows you to see things, Right? And so, by faith, we believe that creation is a work of God. And so, this is a, dis- a description uh, from the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 11 of a faith that perseveres. He says, this is what faith is. And then he gives an example for the next 40 or so verses of here's all of the examples of people who live by these three verses of what I just described to you of what faith is. So, the question tonight as we leave is, what is the evidence of faith? What is the evidence? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Another version says faith is the substance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen. So what is the evidence of faith? What is the evidence of your faith? So here's a question for you. What, what do you do in your life because of faith? Why is your life different because of faith? I want you to think about that. Or put it another way. Sunday is tomorrow. If you didn't have faith, how would you live differently? If you did not have faith, what would Monday look like? You see, faith ought to cause you to live differently. You ought to, you ought to talk differently. You ought to live differently. You ought to act differently. You ought to go different places. You ought to do different things. That's what faith causes you. That's what genuine biblical faith causes you to do. You see, if you didn't have faith, what would you do differently tomorrow? You see, a lot of times we say, oh, okay, well, I have faith. And so because of faith, like today, if we asked on Sunday, if you didn't have faith, what would you do differently? You say, well, I'd stay home and watch the Super Bowl. That was a joke. Right? So you'd say, oh, well, it's because I went to church on Sunday. That's what I did differently because I have faith. Okay, fair enough. What about Monday? What would, you, what would you do differently tomorrow if you did not have faith? Or what will faith cause you to do tomorrow because you have faith? You see, that ought to be a good question to ask. I asked that same question Wednesday night after service 
uh, Kurt, who came down this morning, if you were here, Kurt came to me and said, hey, for the last two weeks I've written on my paper, am I saved? And he said, when you said, what will I do tomorrow that is different because I have faith? He said, I'm just like my coworkers. And so because of that, he said, I, I won't. I want faith. I don't want to live like the world and say I have faith. I want to have faith and not live like the world. And that ought to be our own lives. That if we say we have faith, like James says, well, then prove it. That's what the world is, is desperate for today. Is not just people who say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's not what the world is desperate for. They're desperate for people who actually live that. Who say, I believe in Jesus and I'm living proof of that. That he is alive today, that Jesus is the only living God, and here's the proof through him living in me. That's what faith is. What is the evidence of faith? Well, it is not just a matter of belief. It is a matter of behavior. That you live differently because you believe that Jesus is alive. That's what faith is. To say it's because you come to church, that is not faith. I hate to bust your bubble there. I mean, you can, there's a lot of things that you do, but if you say you have faith, you ought to live it different. You ought to act different, talk different, speak differently. Hope ought to exude from you and say, well, I know that this is tough, or I know this is a bad situation, or I know this is a great situation, or whatever, but God, right? But God, hey, God is able to do this in my life. God is able to deliver me. God is able to provide for me. God is able to do this. God is, a, God is. God, that's what our life ought to revolve around is the fact that we believe that God is. Who sent you, Moses? I am sent me. God doesn't need proof for who he is. Look around. The evidence of creation is not evidenced by the fact that God hires an airplane to paint his name in the sky. He created the sky. The evidence of faith is that you simply believe based on what God said. And if that's not enough, well, then God says you don't have any faith. He's provided everything that you and I need by grace, things that we don't deserve. And he gives us the opportunity through faith to believe in him. And so if we say that we believe in the God of the Bible, then we ought to live differently. It's not just a matter of belief. You ought to behave differently. I ought to behave differently. You see, faith is our part. Faith on our part is simply personal belief in action. Again, James would be a great book for you to read if you want to follow up more on this topic. It's belief in action. What will you do tomorrow because you believe today? Not one person, not a single one, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, duplicated the actions of another not one not one every single one of them was original and personal it was original and personal you do not have proximity faith that does not exist if your spouse is saved and you are not you will not go to heaven if your parents your kids are saved and you are not, you will not go to heaven. Faith is personal. It is individual. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again. That is what faith is. It is personal. It is original. And so when you stand before God 
you will be granted entrance into heaven based on the fact that Jesus paid the price for you and me to be redeemed. But it is personal and individual. And there has to come a point in your life where you accept the things of which God said were true about himself and by faith you trusted those. And when you trust those things, you will live those out in action. It is belief by behavior that because it is true, you live differently. That is what faith is. So I hope that encourages you to examine your own faith. First Corinthians chapter 13 says that, to examine yourself, to look and say, God, what is my faith? How am I living out my faith? And based upon what you've said, in light of who you are, why am I living differently? And that ought to challenge you to look at the things that you do, the things that we're involved in, and say, is this glorifying God? Is this evidence of the fact that I, in fact, do believe? Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for the writer of Hebrews. And God, how, what an amazing journey it's been to get here to chapter 11. And God, how in your mercy, Lord, that you have given us such a clear, concise definition of what faith is. That faith is is not a feeling, it's not an emotion. God, we're not blindly following you, but Lord, you revealed yourself as sure as the nose is on my face of who you are and what you do and how you came to redeem us. And so, Lord, may we live based upon the reality of that. God, you sacrificed your son. God, he, he hung on the cross for six hours on a Friday after being beaten and stripped. And God, he did all that for us to be redeemed, that we would have a chance to have a relationship with you. And God, you not only died on the cross through your son, Jesus, but you raised him from the dead, that he defeated death. And we believe that. So may we live in light of that reality and that truth. God, may our lives be reflective of who you are. The reason people come to faith in you through the lives of other people is that we live lives that reflect the reality of who you are. And so, Lord, I pray for every person in this room that, God, you would activate their faith. That if they say they believe, that they would live based upon that reality. And I thank you, Lord, that you saved Kurt, that you revealed who you are to him, and by faith he believes and he submitted to follow you. Lord, we trust you, and we confess that every word in your Bible is true, and we believe it. So, God, help us. Lord, help us to live that faith that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.